prosperity gospel only truly works out for the person you are paying to preach it to you. But not everyone has the presence to pull it off, you know? You need the looks, the charisma, and the wardrobe, and the stuff. And the stuff is different based on the different variations of the prosperity gospel you're preaching. Now today, for Yom Kippur, I want to talk about the various incarnations of the prosperity gospel and how it can even hide in plain sight, not only in the most obvious form of money and stuff, but also concerning health and fertility and just about anything where we're told if we do X and Y properly, then Z will follow. And we're going to compare and contrast it with ancient magic beliefs and just paganism in general, and how much of the Bible we have to ignore in order to believe it all. Now, parents of special needs kids and those of you who are poor, barren, disabled, chronically sick, or whatever, this one's for you. If you've lived a faithful life and can't keep up with the Joneses, this one's for you. If you are tired of seeing people getting rich, promoting the idea that God is required, obligated to give us whatever in exchange for obedience, you get the picture. It's Yom Kippur this week, and we all of us have a lot to repent for as a body. Hello, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture, and I need another nap. Oh, excuse me. When I'm developing the character of the Messiah, if you prefer written material, I have six years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com as well as my six books available on Amazon, including um, a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. And past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com. And transcripts can be had for most broadcast at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context. Oh, and maybe you need a nap too if you've got kids. I don't anymore. Mine are grown up, but what is it? You know, it's, it's outside. It's dark and it's gloomy and it's rainy. And I'm not complaining because dang. When I'm recording this, it is August and we need the rain. <coughs> but anyway, I have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. And the links for all that are in the transcript and on my blog and everywhere. Anyway, so full disclosure, one of my favorite television shows of all time is Leverage. And I am thrilled that they've come out this summer with a new season after like 10 years. There is just something innately appealing about bad guys who take down other bad guys in extremely clever and humiliating ways. You know, beating them at their own game. But maybe my affection for con artists is why my first quote-unquote Torah-focused congregation 
was run by a man who was actually preaching prosperity gospel with a bit of Torah thrown in. Now, when I was a mainstream Christian, I had never really been exposed to it. So it took me a long time to figure out what was being peddled to me. Yeah, I look back now and I'm embarrassed for having fallen for it. Obviously, you know, anyone wearing a fancy suit and lecturing everyone about tithing for at least 10 minutes every week should have sent up red flags, but honestly, I was too captivated by his delivery and natural charisma, and besides, he was making me feel really good about observing the Sabbath and the feast and not eating pork, you know. Well, you know, by making me feel good about not being one of the people who, you know, who wasn't doing those things, okay? Um, that's always one of the tricks, isn't it? You know, to divide and conquer. Divide people from legitimate brothers and sisters who love God, but who see things differently. And then gain mastery over whoever is still left listening to you. And of course, now that you're on the quote-unquote right side of the fence... You need to be tithing to me, too. And, boy, if you tuned in right there, you got the wrong idea. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, person says you need to be tithing to them, too. And you need to only li listen to the people, you know, I tell you to listen to and only read the books I recommend. Because I don't want you more educated or educated differently than I am. Prosperity Gospels about control. You know, it wasn't until he started talking about how the parking lot should be filled with Cadillacs that I started to even begin to see what was happening. But still, he was teaching me, quote-unquote, Torah. And I thought he was really educated in it, because I wasn't. And, you know, he was interesting, so I gave him a pass. And then I had a dream about him handing me a script, and the dream troubled me, and I made the mistake of telling him about it, and he took it as a sign that he should start making more and more of an effort to tell me what to do. <laughs> ah, giving me a script was something he felt was a good idea. Um, you know, in retrospect, it was a warning that I was increasingly coming under his control. It wasn't until a few months later when I had a dream clearly telling me that he wasn't serving up anything special or worth digesting. Um, um, and made the mistake of talking to him about that as well. Okay. <laughs> I know, I know. You know, I was worried about him and thought that he really respected and loved me. Um, yeah, but that was when the dark side of the controlling prosperity gospel was really revealed to me. He immediately took to a live stream sermon, sermon that very Sabbath and lied about me and said I was possessed of a spirit of fear. Now, you have to know that I never, I have never told anyone about that dream or the contents of that dream, nor did I, or have I ever made any of it public, nor would I ever, all right? It was a private thing. He chose to take it as a potential attack and decided to act against me before I got the chance to act against him. You know, I left the congregation and he expressed concern over me leaving his teachings, but it was the best thing I ever did. Um, he followed up by going to people in private to undermine me and warn them about me, you know, causing a lot of division where none was needed. Um, and all that is to, 
is just to express one concept. You know, prosperity gospel at its core is about controlling the actions and religious expressions and the daily lives of other people through shame, manipulation, and the promises of good stuff in, you know, whatever form. <clears throat> um, you know, as such, it's very much reminiscent of ancient paganism and magic. Do this and get that in return from the deity. Now that, in a nutshell, is what prosperity gospel teaches. That if we live a certain way that God owes us things and we can bank on them. But the problem is that we have to ignore a lot of scripture to come to that conclusion. We're going to have to start out, you know, you know, in Job today to talk about the ancient Near Eastern causality beliefs within the pagan world and how they were waged against Job by his buddies who were bound and determined to figure out what he had done to deserve everything that had happened to him and accused him of everything under the sun in order to figure out why he was being afflicted. Now, going into Job, of course, we know that he hadn't done anything wrong at all. Job tells the story of an honor challenge waged against God, where Satan accuses God of manipulating Job to worship him to be good through blessing. So first, Satan makes this accusation. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Uh, and this is... ESV, English Standard Version, uh, Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Now, Job can be very disturbing. Indeed, it, you know, it just is very disturbing. Anyone who's not disturbed by Job isn't thinking hard enough, all right? The idea that God would turn faithful Job over to Satan, seemingly to satisfy a bet, but that isn't what's going on here at all. There, there was no bet. Satan was accusing Yahweh of engaging in prosperity gospel tactics. That he's buying Job's loyalty. And that the reason Job is so faithful and obedient isn't actually out of gratitude, but because he is, in effect, being paid to do so. In other words, Satan's telling Yahweh that he isn't worthy of being worshipped as creator. Um, but has to buy loyalty. And that's what prosperity gospel's all about. That God is paying us to do what's right. Um, let's look at Job's stuff because dang, that boy had a lot of stuff, okay? Um, starting in verse 2 of chapter 1, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people of the East. I couldn't even afford to feed these guys, okay? Just dang. In a time where 
When most people had to walk everywhere and the lucky had a donkey, having 3,000 camels and 500 donkeys was like owning a ton of luxury car dealerships and, you know, a few just <laughs> used car dealerships for the donkeys, right? Um, camels were like the Cadillac of the desert, all right? On top of that, okay, 7,000 sheep meant that he was swimming in wool and milk and cheese, and meat if he wanted it. Uh, 500 yoke of oxen? And that's, that's a thousand oxen. You know how much land can be plowed with that many oxen? Now, this all suggests, um, about how much land he has on top of all the critters, you know, and it's just mind boggling. And, and remember, okay, wealth in the ancient world wasn't tied up in money. Money was next to useless except to buy necessities when you're a day laborer and you never see anything about anything happen to Job's money because this was his money. Actual wealth was almost always converted to land and critters because land and critters could give you an unending return on investment. Job was insanely wealthy. In fact, this verse says that he was the greatest, aka most prosperous, of all the men in the East. But why? And as I said, Satan twisted the situation around. Instead of Job just being a really prosperous guy, Satan implies that this was a purely vending machine sort of relationship. Job does good because God makes it worth his while. Remove all the bling and Job will turn into a degenerate gambler and pimp. Okay, so he didn't actually say that, but... He might as well, you know, might as well have, and we might as well have some fun with this. Now, don't hate me for being a little bit extra today, okay? It's how I amuse myself, and, you know, fortunately, I'm very easily amused. So Satan, so God calls Satan's bluff and defends his own honor and says, fine, take his stuff, but don't touch one hair on his head. You see, Satan was calling into question how God inherently runs the universe. Was he like a crooked politician? You know, buying votes? Or was he like a good politician? And Oh, I'm sorry. Now we've turned it into a fairy tale with a good politician. Anyway, you know, he's a metaphorical good politician anyway, who is in office because everything he does is good. Um... Okay, you know, do you guys need to stop choking or should I call, you know, 911? <laughs> Good politician. Work with me, guys. Metaphors are never perfect or they wouldn't be metaphors. So long story short, Satan takes all of Job's stuff, including and worst of all, his kids. He didn't take Job's wife. Say what you will about that. Um, and I better, his mother-in-law is still around too. What is with me today? Oh my gosh, stop. Okay. Um, <laughs> maybe it's a one flesh sort of deal and maybe it's just sociological commentary. We don't know. And although I am being lighthearted, there's nothing funny or reasonable, all right, about killing someone's children, but Satan isn't known for his subtlety, mercy, or compassion. Um, Job reacts in a very unprosperity gospel way. He doesn't go looking for wrongdoing because he knows that he's a totally stand-up kind of guy. 
He really handles it with detached resignation. Uh, perhaps he knew that he never really deserved the blessings in the first place, so he didn't really deserve to have them removed either, no matter what he has or hasn't done. Now, remember, and I say remember, even though I haven't mentioned this before, Job is what is called wisdom literature, which means it doesn't have to be a historical account, but was written to reveal the wisdom of God and the difference between um, our God and the gods of the ancient Near East. Job might have happened, but this is elaborate poetry designed to convey wisdom. So we don't know if this is a historical thing or if God inspired an author to write this account in order to reveal deep truths about himself. Um, I can actually see that. You know, it's like, well, I don't want to do this to somebody, so let's, you know, convey this wisdom this way. Um, I know that's so controversial, but, you know, it's... Very modern thinking to want everything in the Bible to be historical, but that's not the way the Jews have ever really looked at it. Modern thinking tells us that something has to be historical to be true, but we don't really believe that. Aesop's fables endure because they teach fundamental truths, and a lot of them are as old or older than quite a bit of the Bible. Likely they will still be studied in another 2,500 years because they are timeless wisdom. Wisdom literature, to be exact. Of course, we do not put them on the same level with the Bible, much of which actually is historical. Um, but we recognize them as teaching true concepts, okay? So, you know, probably really bummed out that Job didn't curse God and prove his accusation true. Um, Satan tries again. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give up for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. What is this with all this cursing to your face? And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Now, anyone who's ever endured real devastating heartache of any sort knows darned well that physical pain is nothing in comparison. But Satan has to be hoping that this will push him over the edge or that maybe vanity will get the best of him or that he will fall into absolute despair and go nuts. Um, it would probably work with me, but I already get angry at God for far less than any of this anyway. Job is like the male version of the Proverbs 31 woman and the unbelievably diligent Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. People just way too good to necessarily be literal. And Satan covers Job head to toe with swords, sores, and his wife is incredibly helpful and encourages him to get it over with. But lest we judge her, she's had it as bad as he has. They're financially destitute and shamed, and it isn't like she can get any respectable job to res support them. You don't even want to know how I would be carrying on. Ever read Lamentations? Ha! Huh. I can complain a whole lot better than that with far less provocation. But Job continues to remain sinless and blameless until... Until his prosperity gospel preaching, very, very helpful friends come to visit and be supportive. And to their credit, they do sit Shiva with him for seven days. 
Shiva, if you don't know, is the seven traditional days of mourning within Judaism where the family members sit and mourn and people sit with them and mourn with them. It's a good thing to do. But his friends just sit there silent with him and we might think that's a bit heartless, but then when they begin to open their mouths, we realize that their silence was an act of ex supreme compassion because these guys are just brutal as the conversation progresses. But, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before they speak, Job commits the unforgivable sin. He starts complaining instead of doing his positive affirmations. And you need to know that, one, that was sarcasm, and two, it is a very biblical thing to honestly vent and complain and to do it to God. Psalms, Lamentations, and the Prophets, it's all over the place. People, excuse me, howling with grief and indignation and protestations of holiness as they work through their anger and grief. Job has a right to be totally upset and messed up right now and he wishes he was dead you know can we blame him all he has in the world right now is a grieving wife who is too crushed to offer him any support because she is beyond desolate in her own right no judgment from me um lord only knows where my head would be and what i would be saying but as i said before job has quote unquote friends you ever had something really bad happen and then somebody feels as though they need to defend God when it hasn't even occurred to you attack him and then they say, well, just remember that God is good. Well, one, that comes off as accusatory, as though you are harboring evil thoughts about God secretly in your mind when really all you've been trying to do is cling to him in desperation and two, it plants the seed of resentment. Defending someone that isn't being attacked is the easiest way in the world to get thoughts going that maybe that person isn't so innocent. Well, anyway, the first round of comments from Job's three friends, they're kind of like that, but worse. Because they immediately start with the snippy remarks and cheap shots, and worse than that, they're like claiming that nothing bad ever happens to anyone who doesn't have it coming. That God is too good to allow anyone righteous to suffer. From their vantage point as fellow rich males in the ancient Near Eastern world and not slaves, poor, or women, it just makes perfect sense to them that they have it good because they deserve it. In effect, they are preaching the content of what Satan accused Yahweh of in the first chapter. So, you know, not only does Yahweh have prosperity gospel being accused at him, but Job has it being, you know, preached to him by his friends. And, you know, it's not just one voice. It's three of them ganging up on Job and reiterating this horrible travesty upon Job, which we know from chapter one and two is absolutely innocent of wrongdoing. The words have elements of truth in them. All right, but their application is in error and lacks wisdom. But then there is nothing easier than kicking someone when they're down, right? And there's never been an easier target than Job. Every time Job tries to tell them he hasn't sinned, the more argumentative and certain they become that not only has he sinned, they suggest the worst sort of offenses against justice and righteousness. It's like they pull out you know, every p potential sin off the shelf to accuse him of it, 
Job must be guilty of one or many horrible offenses. Otherwise, this wouldn't be happening to him. Where they accuse him, you know, they accuse him of being dishonest in business and oppressive to the vulnerable. It would sound to him like the accusations of, you know, slavery, child molestation, and rape would sound to us. All right? They're not accusing him of small sins, but the big kahunas of ancient Near Eastern transgressions. The more Job asserts his innocence of wrongdoing, the more self-righteously and relentlessly they push him, and all the while drawing anger out of Job that he previously had either not been feeling or had not been able to give voice to. But let's be honest, we never feel anger toward anyone until it is, you know, been brought to our attention that we're being wronged. And that's what they're doing here. Um, I'll be right back. And welcome back to the second half of this week's character and context, our special Yom Kippur edition, where we're talking about something that we all need to repent of a lot. And, and that's prosperity gospel, because although people just generally think of the main, you know, the wealth things, there's a lot of ways that we preach and believe in prosperity gospel without even thinking about it. Um, and I found it just as prominent among people who claim to be Torah observant and maybe even more so than people who, uh, who are mainstream Christians. Anyway, so we've been talking about Job and how Job is essentially an anti-prosperity gospel document. Um, which shocked me when I figured out that I've been reading this book called Wisdom's Wonder and it's written by this great scholar and I will, I'm gonna write it here and I will Put it in the, um, I will put it in the transcript um, when I do this. Anyway, um, so going on, in the speeches of Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar, uh, their pretense at defending God is really about blaming Job instead. And in their mind, someone's to blame, and it can't possibly be God. Uh, by default, uh, Job has sinned and needs to repent. But Job, you know, he knows he's done nothing to repent of and is caught in the trap of all those against whom false accusations are brought. You know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You have nothing to repent for because you haven't done anything. But you're told that until you repent, you're damned. You know, and that is why I hate false accusations so much. I'd rather be accused of something I'm guilty of because there I can either admit it or not. And I am guilty, so being accused isn't such a huge deal. It's when everyone thinks you're guilty and you can't prove yourself innocent or be accepted back into the community until you lie and repent for a sin you didn't commit, which isn't repentance at all and that's just awful. And I've had that happen to me quite a bit. Um, I think everyone in ministry has. 
I would rather be accused of actual sin because I really can do something to correct that. Um, but false accusation, man, it just leaves you so powerless. And being powerless is a great breeding ground for anger. And Job is sure getting a crash course in that. So back and forth, back and forth, all Job, you know, Job's being used as a tennis ball here, back and forth between his buddies' rackets. All Job wanted was for his pain to be heard. He wanted to tell his story. But his friends, you know, and I've never used that term more loosely, um, made it into an artificial battle with God. And who can come out of that the winner? And Job, you know, and... And Job, what Job does is actually very wise. He demands arbitration on the matter, all right? Only God can condemn or vindicate him, so he throws his case before God. He knows he's innocent. That is, um, you know, that's what he knows with absolute surety. And I've skipped a lot because we can't do 42 chapters in 50 minutes, and we still have other things to talk about. Um, but in the end, Yahweh makes an appearance and says that Job didn't do anything to deserve what had happened to him, and that the words of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar about him, seemingly spoken in, in Yahweh's defense, were really off base. Their prosperity gospel held no water because it presumed upon the deity that nothing in the world just happens, that God is to be blamed or credited with everything. Uh, the bad things, you know, bad things don't happen to good people because Yahweh wouldn't allow it. And good people can expect only good for doing good. Uh, in the end, you know, the only person who has spoken correctly about Yahweh is Job. Despite all his complaints and lamentations and anger and questioning, um, Job's friends, whether they knew it or not, were tempting Job to sin against Yahweh by making it into an either-or situation. Either Yahweh or Job was in the wrong. They didn't understand that perhaps neither was wrong. It's a get-behind-me-Satan kind of moment, all right? But in the end, uh, Job lost everything, but was vindicated, and the three friends were rebuked, but also prayed for by Job. Okay, they were rebuked by Yahweh, and they were prayed for by Job. Job got back double amounts of everything he'd lost. However, although he had ten more children, it wasn't like the ones he lost were returned to him. Job did uh, come out of it a changed man. He even broke with the traditions and laws of the times and gave full shares of inheritance to his three daughters. Job learned the hard way who God is and is not, and so did his friends. God is good and merciful and generous, but he doesn't buy our love with bling. We don't get rich from being obedient. Our obedience is tied to our gratitude for him just being him. He deserves our love, and we give it to him regardless of our material or health circumstances, all right? Prosperity gospel was Satan's accusation, not Yahweh's normal operating procedure. In effect, Job was the prosperity gospel on trial. So, what does all this have to do with us in modern times? I, I don't own a single camel, ox, sheep, or donkey. I don't even have enough land to put one of each on. 
Uh, and what would I even do with any of them except, you know, the sheep? And I eat the sheep totally. Um, so then I'd be stuck with three large animals in my backyard. Now, my husband's evil cat, she'd probably die of a heart attack. So, you know, might start needing to think about that. Um, now, this would not be my idea. I love my husband's evil cat. I'm just kidding. She sleeps with me under the covers every night. She's so spoiled. Um, since she was a kitten, so <laughs> 11 years now. Now, this would not be my idea of a blessing to have these animals in my backyard. Now, a university library bequeathing me all their books and the library to live in? Oh, man, yeah, I am all in for that. Um... I'm pretty sure my friend Linda Simmons would move in with me, too. <laughs> now, you know, would a university have to die in order to write me into their will? Not sure how that would work, but, uh, you know, I guess that's just another pipe dream. Anyway, now, I'm going to get really serious because we've had our fun, but we see that Job's, you know, we see Job's friends alive and well and gathering around every tragedy like vultures around a decaying wildebeest. Okay. That wasn't super serious. You know, work with me while I transition here. Believers that I believe are well-meaning, like Job's friends were probably actually very well-meaning and undoubtedly thought they were saving him from damnation or worse, you know, not having stuff, um, tend to get very prosperity gospel-ish when people are going through tough times. In fact, it is a rather comforting and selfish thing to believe that the good things in our lives are God's mark of approval. And if we just keep on keeping on, tragedy will never strike our houses. And yet, we know historically and biblically that terrible things happen to good people all the time. Exhibit A, the cross. <laughs> we also know that good things happen to terrible people. How on earth did Jezebel live so long and so wealthy with so many kids anyway, right? Sure, she was thrown to her death and eaten by dogs, but dang, until that, she had very little complaint about. She wasn't going hungry during the drought, right? Um, The Psalms. You know, one will say, oh, thank you, Yahweh, the righteous are blessed with plenty and the wicked are destroyed. And a few Psalms later, we see something like, Yahweh, why do the wicked prosper and why do the righteous beg for bread? With wisdom literature, you're going to see the extremes of reality. Yes, the righteous should never lack for enough to eat, but then they shouldn't be rotting in Chinese political prisons either, being tortured. Read Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand if you want an eye-opener to what happens to righteous people. Faithful people, read early church history. No, the righteous are often afflicted, and it isn't because God is punishing them for secret sins. And the world is always full of healthy, rich people enjoying their lives while oppressing pennies-a-day workers in third-world nations. You know, which is why we have cheap clothes, so I guess we're doing it too. Now, <clears throat> to preach prosperity gospel and to make those sorts of promises is not only to impose the goodness of God, impose on the goodness of God, excuse me, but to deny inconvenient realities and... Worse, to explain those realities away by blaming the victims. You know, why did my friends in the ministry for decades lose their 20-year-old daughter last year? Why don't the wicked all end up childless and impoverished? Who do we blame for the reality of how life turns out before Messiah returns and makes the whole world a justice and righteous place? Okay, 
Why do we make assumptions that the wealth that is available here in America is freely available to everyone who is righteous enough to merit it? Why do we want church parking lots filled with Cadillacs instead of churches filled with the vulnerable whose needs are getting met and who will probably never be rich but will find healing and the sort of prosperity that comes from a soul at rest and not in constant internal crisis? In the West, you know, we are rewards and external blessings obsessed. It's like porn to us. It's coveting turned into a doctrine. Now, I remember about 19 years ago, back when I was a Southern Baptist, I read a book called A Life God Rewards, and it really pushed the idea that we should be working hard in this life for the kingdom because this life is this little blip before this unending eternity and how we live there depends on what we did here. And it was the worst thing I could have read, especially as a new Christian. Gone was the joy I previously had in the Lord, and my covetousness and greed took center stage. I was stressed out that the Lord would return any time, and I didn't have enough works to end myself up in the kind of living quarters that would show everyone how righteous I was in my former life. And yeah, I'm being painfully honest here, okay? I should have mentioned pride along with the covetousness and greed. I didn't love him yet, and I didn't want to serve him for his sake alone. I was still scared of what eternal life would look like, and now, honestly, I couldn't care less. All right? In fact, I have come to the place where, if there turned out to be no eternal life at all, I would not consider my life wasted. He's healed me of so much pain and trauma and heartache, and he's given me so much peace. And not all the time, of course, okay? I still live a real life filled with nonsense, but what he has done for me already feels like, you know, for lack of a better word, heaven, compared to what my life used to be like inside my head. The kingdom of heaven is here, and I feel it every day. If I wanted prosperity on the world's terms, I would take my chemistry degree and go get a job and stop breaking even in ministry. But I want people to know this God who has emotionally healed me because I want them healed as well. And money can't buy that. Now, that's just one type of prosperity gospel. All right. Serving God now, not because of loving devotion and truly wanting others to know him, but out of the stress of wanting eter eternal stuff. You know, what about people who promise perfect health if you just eat right and exercise and use the right herbs and oils and shun modern medicine, which is said to be sinful, and I did a whole broadcast on what pharma pharmakia meant in the Septuagint in the first century world, you know, so if you want to check that out. It wasn't modern medicine. It can't be. Um, based on ancient documents. You know, they mean well, but it's also a form of prosperity gospel. If only it were a guarantee. And prosperity gospel always speaks in terms of guarantees on behalf of God. Um, but some of the most responsible naturopathic people I know suffer from terrible conditions. And I love them. They're wonderful people. They're actually some of my favorite people because they see the world as it is, that you can do things as right as possible and still get the short end of the stick without it being divine punishment. There's just something about being otherwise innocent and yet still afflicted that fashions people into the most beautiful sort of believers. 
Okay. It grounds them in compassion and the sort of wisdom that only comes through the hard walk of suffering and unjust judgment and rejection based on appearances. You know, I had a gal on my social media wall a number of months ago who was adamant that blame was to be assigned when someone had a health issue because it is supposedly rare that a body can have something wrong with it if you've been living right. But how many of us suffer from issues that are congenital due to birth defects or genetic issues? The evidence is all around us that we cannot ever be of the mindset that most people have earned their problems because it puts everyone in the crosshairs as guilty until proven innocent. But that's always an excellent indicator of prosperity gospel. Um, how about people who are married versus single or who have the quiver full of kids versus those who are barren and or infertile? Um, I've seen both of these touted as the rewards of the righteous and the punishment due to those who have unrepentant sin in their lives. But seriously, a lot of us respectable religious gals now um, are married now because we were, you know, frankly willing to put out before marriage, to put it crudely. Or is that just me, right? Fortunately, it was just Mark, but if he hadn't married me, you know... Uh, and there's a ton of righteous ladies who came into this walk who aren't willing to go there, and rightly so. So how come I get to look like I'm being rewarded for my righteousness with a 30-year marriage and a 40-year-old virgin is getting the sideways glance and people are wondering what is wrong with him or her? Now, statistically, when we look at how unlikely it is to, one, find and be attracted to someone who is also attracted to you, two, find that person to be actually a believer, and three, have that other pe person be committed to a long-term relationship, it's a wonder anyone gets married at all. Now, instead, excuse me, I'm going to sniff it for a minute here, allergies. Um, instead, we should all be focused on living righteously and stop looking at marriage as some sort of litmus test of work. Worth, it's, it's almost like it's, it's winning the lottery because it's like when you think of everything that has to happen, um, and especially for a good marriage to happen, it's like crazy. Um, Amy Carmichael and Gladys Aylward and countless other godly women and men never got married. And it wasn't for a lack of worth or not wanting to. It just didn't happen. I dare any married woman to exalt herself over either of those two. And just, you know, obviously don't exalt yourself at all. <laughs> Actually, although that is another aspect of prosperity gospel because the haves get to claim more righteousness in the eyes of God than the have-nots. You know, life is hard enough for the have-nots and they don't need to be dismissed or patronized as though we're meant to have stuff. We are meant to be a blessing to others. Telling someone that if they were only faithful enough to God and submissive enough to the leadership um, of their spouse that uh, they wouldn't have been abused, cheated on, etc. You know, that, man, nonsense. People make their own selfish decisions all the time, and they don't care who they're hurting. No one has ever deserved spousal betrayal. Imagine telling a child that if they'd just been more obedient that they wouldn't have been physically, psychologically, or sexually abused. Yeah. That feeling of disgust and revulsion you just had, I hope, 
you should you should have it for the grown-up example too this is a stealth form of prosperity gospel telling women that they're responsible for their wives for their husbands cheating or telling husbands they're responsible for their wives cheating um again i mentioned family size there are a lot of religions and denominations that promote the idea that the righteous woman you know has to have as many kids as possible and we talked about that last week and why that was so important in the ancient near eastern world um you know to produce sons and a small fighting force um really it's a workforce and a, a personal army but the evidence of scripture speaks against it being a litmus test for favor or righteousness as a ton of the named women in the bible and there aren't that many na named women in the bible um you know they a sizable portion of them were barren and one never gave birth at all and some only had one or two children um so well actually two of the name women in the bible never have children that i know of but one was michael we're not gonna include her because she was yeah i think david stopped having sex with her because she was mocking his dancing um Anyway, so, you know, if you are barren or infertile, like me, or if you choose not to have a large family, that's just fine. If you choose to have a big family, you're just fine. What isn't fine is women exalting themselves over one another based on either of those things. Telling someone that their childlessness and miscarriages are about hidden, unrepentant sin which has happened to me right after miscarriage is not only oppressive and cruel, but a shot across the bow of women like Sarah, Hannah, Elizabeth, and Anna. We need to cut out this sort of elitist womb based prosperity gospel. Telling the poor that they wouldn't be poor if they tithed to their slick talking, well-dressed minister. <laughs> The Bible's clear. The tithe is for the benefit of the poor. They don't pay it. They receive it. Anyone who tithes in order to be rich is acting like they feel God owes them some sort of monetary exchange for services. Nonsense. I mean, he's not the stock market, okay? You know, God isn't an ATM or a vending machine. We tithe because it's the kingdom thing to do in order to support those who minister to us and, more importantly, to support the poor. Not in order to get anything back. You think you deserve more than eternal life? Really? Going there? And I'm sure you can think of more examples. I could think of a lot more examples. Um, you know, as the mother of a special needs child, I, could, I better not even go there because I just get angry. If we have time at the end. I... And I yeah, we can all think of more examples, but all of this is promoted by folks with agendas, you know, whether they see it or not. And oftentimes they actually haven't thought it out critically or compassionately. They're often as driven by their flesh as any lusty te teenager with a pocket full of condoms. They're just less honest about it. Sure, our bodies operate better if we exercise and feed them properly, but there's no guarantees. Guilting disabled or sick people that they don't have enough faith is really seriously poking at God's mercy with a stick. You know, maybe you don't get sick not because you are so excellent, but because of good genetics that you didn't deserve and because God knows you'll crumble at the moment he tests you. 
Greed comes in so many forms. Bragging comes in so many forms. Cruelty comes in so many forms. And you know what? God's mercy also comes in so many forms. Agendas uh, need to be handled more honestly, or they can turn into prosperity gospel. You can't make any guarantees to anyone on anything. You don't have the right to make promises that God or somebody else's body has to deliver on, or even your own. You know, talk about probabilities if you want trends, possibilities, whatever, but you know what? Guarantees? No, don't do it. I mean, unless they involve gravity or other immutable laws of physics, just don't. Or if you're going to say, you know, if you swear your allegiance to Yahweh through Yeshua, you may call him Jesus the Messiah, you know, you're going to inherit eternal life. That, that's okay to do that one. We're killing faith by abusing God's love and reputation for personal gain. It's got to stop. And the people making these assurances are false prophets because they are obligating God to their claims, which rarely bear fruit. But just often enough that they can use them as um, proof, as a, as a human equivalent of proof text, as anecdotes. You know, there's always anecdotes, but very little real data. You know, of course, they just blame the victim when their, you know, promises come to pass, but don't for a moment believe that they are absolved in God's eyes. And like I said at the beginning, the only person prosperity gospel works for is the guy in the fancy suit whom you are praying to preach it to you in hopes of being rich yourself. And it's just a form of religious prostitution, really. And sure, it seems to work for the people they trot out for testimonies, but not in the multitudes who are paying for it and seeing no harvest at all and being told it's because of sin. And if the sin of greed isn't penalizing these teachers, I don't think that's what's holding anyone else back either. We can't afford to make those same claims about God that Satan did. And when we're preaching prosperity gospel, you know, that's exactly what we are doing. We are we're accusing God of being exactly what Satan said he was. <laughs>